HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. We are with Chef Phelps Spear, co-owner, chef, longtime friend, uh, but chef uh, co-owner of Bonami um, in Austin. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. It's about time. We've been trying to do this for about seven years. I know. <laughs> I know. It's 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 been a long time coming. Um, congratulations on the new spot. Thanks. Uh, we're loving it. It's been. Um it's been a success in a short amount of time, which has been obviously exciting. I'm very grateful for that, but it's also like taken us like we're we're, we're playing catch up every day still. We're yeah. we're on our fourth week. Um, as soon as uh, as soon as I get all these staffing holes filled, you know, we, we can stabilize and start living a normal life, or you know, somewhat normal life. Somewhat normal life. I feel like it's so odd because no matter where we are, especially in America, whether we're, we're interviewing in. Philly or New York or LA or Austin, I feel like basic staffing is one of the largest issues yeah. in running a restaurant these days. Absolutely. I mean, and I could, you know, we could go down the list of reasons. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think that's a thing, but yeah, I definitely think it's a national, it's a national um, issue right now. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit because we're going to talk um, a bunch about the new restaurant and, and further down, but so... Where did you grow up? Where did you get? Where were you born? Um, I was born in South Texas, and uh, I was born in a little city called McAllen, Texas, which is about four miles away from Mexico. Yeah. Um, I grew up for the first several years of my life in the Rio Grande Valley. Is what it, the, that group of cities down there? So we, if you live in Texas, you call it the Valley, and you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Outside of Texas, no one really knows. Um, so I grew up in the Valley uh, till I was about fourth grade. Ended up coming to Austin with my dad. Um, and we spent a little more time in between Houston and Austin. Uh, my dad ended up going to Kentucky, University of Kentucky. So traveled around a little bit for school. My mom moved, just went and spent some time with her in Chicago. So I kind of bounced around for the next several years. Um, but sort uh, of this South Midwest sort of vibe. For sure, yeah. And, and, and mainly Texas. You know, I'm, I'm a Texan. Through Texas, through. born and bred. Yeah. Mom cooked, dad cooked, grandma cooked, grandma um, cooked. My grandmother and my... Yeah, oh, I mean, I, I, everyone in my family coached. My dad cooked more out of necessity. Sure. Um, my grandmother on my father's side was a great cook. She, I, I, you know, some of the only really good home-cooked meals I ever had growing up with, because I spent most of my time with my father, uh, were hers. Yeah. Um, like the actual home-cooked meal. My dad and I cooked all the time. But yeah. It was way more experimental because we had nothing, right? Yeah. And right. Uh, on my mom's side of the family, they were, they were all cooks, but I spent a little less time with them. So, so when did you start... I mean, you've always been a lover of food, but you've also been a lover of music. Which came first? Oh, um, music for sure. I mean, music, skateboarding, the whole culture, you know, yeah. punk rock skateboarding culture, which sort of turned into like more of a hip hop street culture. Sure. Um, you could, you know, there's one of two ways that most people went, and mine was more of the like urban street hip hop culture. Um, the skateboarding and then food as well again out of, more out of necessity you know it was my dad and I a lot just the two of us and I had to learn how to how to sort of fend for myself um, at times and we got real creative with with not a lot of um, stuff so when you say creative what's an example of a dish that you and your father would make together oh I mean there, <laughs> there aren't that many standouts because it was literally like putting together bare bones stuff you sure know, different you know, well, more people do casseroles and, yeah. and, and shit like that. Um, but, uh, you know, one, once things started changing and, and my dad graduated from college and there was a little bit more success in the, 
and the family, we had fun doing Thanksgiving dinners together. I left I left home when I was 16. Oh, wow. And I moved, and we were living in Houston. I moved to Austin. So, you know, from, from 16 on, I was, you know, cooking here. I would go home, and we would do Thanksgiving dinners and, and Christmas dinners. And then we'd have fun doing stuff like that. So when you were 16, is that when you started getting into restaurant, cooking, working? Where was your, do you remember your first restaurant that job? Yeah, my first restaurant job was a place called Cook's Night Out, and it was when I was 17. Here in um, Austin? Here in Austin. and Still around? It is. Well, the building is still around, and the grocery store that it was connected to is, but it's changed. The concept of that has changed. Yeah. What's funny is I worked for a chef called, uh, his name is Jean-Luc Salles, and he, um, I worked for him. He's the first chef I ever worked for. Uh, it was in a deli grocery store bakery situation. Interesting. Um, so it wasn't a restaurant feel. Um, but at that point, I knew that that's. I kind of wanted to continue my career in food, um, or start, start. a career in food. Um, we'll call it the start. The but start. like, be like, I'm going to actually make a run at this. Exactly. Um, funny enough, several years later, um, the first restaurant I opened with somebody, um, which was it was called Jean Luc's Bistro. Yeah. And Jean Luc had left that grocery store and opened his own restaurant. And a friend of mine, Sean Circle. Uh, uh, who's a, a very a prominent chef in Austin still and has multiple restaurants. Um, that was the first restaurant he had ever opened as well. And I, he, he opened it as the owner. I, I opened it with him as the pastry chef. And um, it was just so like serendipitous to walk in and take over this operation from Jean-Luc, who's the first chef I'd ever worked with. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, years later. So what year is this? This, was, this would have been 2000. So, I mean, you've been cooking in, in the Austin food scene for... Coming up, coming up on like I mean, two decades plus. Um, what was it like back then? I mean, because it you know it was it's now it's completely different. But back Absolutely. then, um, you know, twenty years ago in Austin, there was there was a handful of fine dining restaurants. Um, Jeffrey's. Jeffrey's was one of them. Um, the cafe, the cafe at Driscoll. Yeah. Um, the, sorry, the cafe at the Four Seasons, the restaurant at the Driscoll Hotel. Um, there was. Um, Jeff Blank had the big game place out right outside of Austin, um, Hudson's on the Bend. Okay. And there were one or two other um, fine dining restaurants at that time. Um, and that was it for elevated cuisine. Yeah. Then there was, as everyone says about Austin and Texas, barbecue and Tex-Mex. And it's true. Sure. It was mainly barbecue and Tex-Mex. There were a couple other kind of cool restaurants starting, you know, there were a couple top, tapas who were starting to make their way around. Oh, yeah. So, like, there Early 2000 tapas? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So, a couple little cool little tapas bars over there. There's some good, <laughs> good um, kind of... I don't even, you know, Austin's never really had good sandwich shops, but there were like some little like kind of hippie style yeah. coffee place that I mean, had some cool I got food, you. but that, that was it. There was nothing. And then it was around, you know, the later nineties, um, and the 2000 where like more restaurants started opening or some restaurants started opening that were trying something a little bit different. There was a little bit of youth. Sure. Um, sort of coming into it, you know, people who in their 20s wanted to be chefs rather than in their 30s and 40s, um, and they wanted to do something a little bit more different. The influences were different. Maybe the influences came from more of the, the, the passions that we had for skateboarding and, and food and art and music and, and art, etc. It's funny how you can see that through line of like, the, of like ripping on skateboards and music and that passion and being like, okay, well, I can't, I'm not 17 and I can't like bomb downtown anymore. But where can I put this creative energy? So um, after you opened up your first restaurant, where'd you go from there? Um, 
so I'd worked in several restaurants before, you know, opening Jean-Louis Bistro with Sean. Um, and made several of those work experiences were bakeries, and I was a yeah. pastry chef. Um, yeah. So I worked in bakeries first. Uh, I worked in four bakeries around Austin uh, for five or six years. Went and did Jean-Louis Bistro with Sean Circule. And then from there, I did a couple other French restaurants in town. Um, I then went to... All as the pastry chef? Mm-hmm. All as pastry. And still as pastry, I went and had an opportunity. I was in a place in Austin where um, I had maybe an opportunity to leave Austin for a little while, mm-hmm. although I knew I'd always come back. And I was looking at going to New York or you know a larger city and learning something. But then it turned out that uh, Jean-Georges was opening a concept in Houston. Mm. And me thinking, well, this, this is an easier way for me to get that big city experience. Sure two hours away where I have family and it's a little bit you know I can because I had Ella here my, my oldest daughter yeah um, so I was just going to leave for a year and try to you know sort of learn a little bit more and then come back to Austin because I was sort of in that place in my career yeah so I was able to do it in Houston so I went to Bang John George in Houston which um, was actually a, a life changing experience for Why? me in a lot of ways um, it was one of the ways is I it was the first time I'd worked with a group of chefs that were not from the area. Mm. So people had come from all over the country to work there. Um, and everyone was, was pretty professional. I had also had never worked in a hotel before. So that's a totally different experience yeah. uh, I mean, than working in a small restaurant. And were they doing full F&B, room service, everything? Yeah, it was quite an operation. Uh, there were some other chefs at the time, some cooks, and then at the time, executive sous chef and executive chefs or chef de cuisine there that... Um, Ended up doing, who are very well known now, doing yeah. great things like Brian Caswell, Ashton Hall, some of these um, other chefs. And so it was the first time to work with some people like that, as well as Jean George, Danny DeVecchio, Joe Murphy. These these New York chefs were coming into into the just a couple of names, right? Just a couple of guys, <laughs> a couple of guys who know their way around the line. Exactly, and they were coming in, and I was getting this. I, it was what I wanted. I was getting this big city experience. My air quotes, you can't see. Yeah, I was getting this big city experience in Houston, and I could come still see my daughter every week. And and it was also very life changing because um, Houston kind of ate me up um, on drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So. You know, I... I mean, more... I mean, but imagine if you'd gone to New York and what the drugs and alcohol yeah, there. exactly. I mean, so. that, I mean, that's, you know, that that's part of that big city chef world is, like, yeah. work the line. Work intense, intense, intense. Intense, out all night, drugs, drinking. Yeah, come back to that. Come work. So... And, and there was... And, there, and a lot of people in that... This is the first time, like, I had drank with my friends in the restaurants in Austin, but in Houston, at the hotel, we would leave, and it was fucking shit show all the time. Yeah. And then right back to work in another 18-hour day. And it's the first time I'd worked the 13 to 18-hour days on a regular yeah. basis, you know. Um, and I'd never had a taste of that. And it cha- it did. It changed my life. It changed my career. It changed my perspective on restaurants and food. Um, and I wouldn't change the experience for anything. Yeah, but I mean that – I mean it's tough though because at some point you wake up and it's like six months, a year later, and you're like, I haven't slept in a year. And it was a year later, and, I, and it's exactly what happened. I woke up, and the chef, um, Brian Caswell – who's still a very good friend, came up to me, he's like, look, he's like, you're ready to go back to Austin. And he knew that because my daughter was here and I was stressing all the time about that and I was also not doing well with the drinking um, and the partying and he was like this, he he just came to me as a friend, I was like, it's it's time for you to go home, right? Um, And I I left amicably and came back to Austin and um, 
sort of got a new start on what was going on here in Austin. So when you came back to Austin, where did you land and did you like chill out for a little bit? Um, I can't, yeah, I came back to Austin and landed at a restaurant called Seven, which um, is now closed. Oh, yeah, seven different types of, you can get fish uh-huh. by the ounce. That? And, yeah. yeah, that was, uh, Sam I, was and Will I, Packwood. I was either living here or I was coming back about it, but I remember because I was like, oh, that's a crazy concept. You could order any type of fish and you could ounce. buy the ounce. And then pair any sauce with it. Yeah, which I thought I was like, oh, that's a novel concept, but I feel like that's got to be hell on like ordering and managing. Yeah, it was. It was. I love the guys who did it, and I see the genius of the concept, but it was a it, fucking mess. It's such a genius. But, yeah. <laughs> but is that when you started working, like getting into more fish and more like working with like that type of? I was still the pastry chef there, pastry and chef. to be honest with you, I still was kind of a wreck yeah. uh, on my personal life. Yeah. Um, that restaurant ended up um, not working out. Yeah. Um, I then went on to do. Um, a restaurant called Starlight. And Starlight was, the very, yeah. And yeah. Charlotte was very popular for a very long time. I ate time. there. Oh, and, yeah. And I worked at both of them. The, the old location and the newer location. I opened that location with them. Spent several years there. Um, had a great time. Still great friends with the chef, Josh Hines. Um, and made a, you know, still was the pastry chef there. We, we did great. It was a great restaurant. Um, at that time, um, the restaurant started slowing down. Uh, the downtown location, and it was time. It was it was time to look for something else because you know being a pastry chef is a luxury in restaurants. Yeah, and um, I could see that we were headed in that direction where it was about to go to Skeleton Crew, and the restaurant closed shortly afterward. Yeah. Um, at that time, I had heard that a new restaurant that had only been open at this point about a year um, that was making really, really, really good critical and local. Um, a claim called Uchi had opened and I heard that they were actually going to look for a pastry chef so I got the number of the chef there from Josh uh, yeah. who was my chef at Starlight I told Josh I was like man it's time to go he's like yeah he's like this he knew too yeah um, and I, I sent a text or I called Tyson because we didn't you didn't really text as much back then. Um, I called Tyson Cole the chef who I didn't really know I'd met him at an event I was like hey I heard you're looking for a pastry chef like it's me. I'm the guy. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to talk about your time at Uchi. Um, also, I'm going to gush over your corn dessert, which is still one of my favorite desserts of this time. Uh, we're going to take a quick musical break. Track from the archives on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are sitting in the month-old French-American bistro, Bonami with Chef Philip Spear. Um, so you're back in Austin in just, you landed Uchi, mm-hmm. which to me and to a lot of people who had known about the Austin dining scene really, I think, just raised the entire concept of fine dining out in a modern way not in the Absolutely. rest um, in, 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 in a lot of ways honestly and I can say this with retrospect you know I would preach that while I worked there and mm. it was a little you know maybe a little self-serving and obviously biased who's doing the pastries at Uchi <laughs> right but in, in retrospect I can tell you um, have been in the town for the amount of time in the city for the amount of time I've been in what it really did do for the Austin dining scene and it absolutely elevated it and changed it and I think many people who've been around long enough would 100% agree um, many food writers have said the same thing etc it doesn't but yes um, I mean, it, it changed was, it in a way yeah. that it took the antiquated fine dining of the same places that I had just mentioned who were still the only fine dining places at the time and it it made it a little more modern it made it more comfortable it made it it almost rated it a little more casual you know things that pe- people are doing in other cities already but it was sort of the first in Austin and it took a type of cuisine that was not popular here um, which was Japanese yep um, and introduced it and then this was Tyson's Tyson's vision introduced it to it was a gateway it was a gateway to Japanese food right and that's and there was many Japanese dishes but he was like, hey, how do we take this with Texas and Austin ingredients and present Japanese cuisine in a way that is palatable for the people of the area? I mean, it was awesome. And it was interesting. And he spent, he spent <laughs> zero, I mean, zero expense on getting the best product in Austin. And that was another thing that was new. He didn't give a fuck about food costs. And he would tell you that. He's like, I want the best food. Oh, yeah. And this is me and Paul and Kaz and you know a whole other group of us and he was like and, but the three of us we walked ice cream he was like I want the best products the best food and I want to do something very different and very delicious and that's we had the opportunity to do that and what was it like being there being at a restaurant when it is just on all cylinders it's amazing it's, a, it's the coolest most invigorating experience ever I mean there's nothing like it and and it's I, I, it, I can't compare it to anything I mean it's a it's a it's it's a chaotic orchestra that's just flowing together. With the, what happened to the things that happened to Uchi were, were to, to the guests a seamless experience of like ninjas going going yeah. around and, and delivering these, all these courses of food. And it's when it's working like that, and it's a, it's a well-oiled machine. Um, there's nothing. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it at all. And so you're taking all of your experiences and your your. your um, you know, the level of restaurant that you're at is now elevated and also, like, new and, like, a real sense of, like, this is a new movement in a city of food. Uh, what type of dishes were you putting up? And, and, and was it, like, this the most, like, one of the most fertile, inspirational times in your life? Yeah, it was it absolutely, to, to this day. And I'm sure always will be. I mean, that's really where, you know, I had taken this, these new experiences, these experiences I had up to this point and turned, put it into play in a completely new experience for everyone because it was... It was in that, evo- that like evolution. Of, the, the, the whole time at, at Uchi was was a kind of an evolutionary phase, you know. And it, it it always that whole you know I was there for ten years. That whole period of time from like two thousand five to two thousand eleven or twelve was just like constantly changing, constantly changing, constantly changing every day. I mean, the first year I worked there, I did 
over 300 dessert specials. I still have the list on my computer mm. that I go back and look at. I'm like, holy shit, every day I change dessert. We were changing five to seven menu items a day. And it was just, it was chaos. And we were just getting the products in, all these products from all over the world. And some of the times we were fucking them up because we had no idea what <laughs> yeah. to do with them. And the other times we were creating really cool things. Um, there were a lot of hits and a lot of misses. Um, but that's exciting when you can be in that when you have that trust of the diner when they're like yeah like sometimes that, that new dish is just not going to be good but so guess a, what 8 out of 9 were good and, but, and I appreciate what they're doing and that was another thing about that's amazing you said that because that's another thing about Uchi that I think made it so successful is that people walked in there and it was the true meaning of the word omakase yeah. right, which is trust the chef and people walked in there and they knew that through the service and through the food that they were going to get a new experience they were going to get something completely different and they were going to trust that that it was going to be something cool and that it was like this openness and I think that's what's happening all over the world at the time but things have changed today and yeah there's not that trust that trust with the guests and I'm sure it is some places but as a general whole of trying something new has changed because I think the guests have gotten a little bit too educated yeah I mean I I, I agree with that and uh, I gotta say that corn dessert the uh, ice cream and everything was I still dream about that dessert um, and I think I came back a couple times to Uchi and Uchiko being like yeah we're just gonna I'm gonna eat everything but we're gonna get to that meal I'm gonna get I think I ordered it twice on more than one occasion <laughs> awesome uh, and, and to this day it's one of my favorites still too it's it's a fantastic it's just, it's just like it's like everything you think corn can be in more um, so this is so you're there. Um, you're at Uchi. Uchiko opens. Mm-hmm. Um, we opened Uchiko in 2010, and you are just still the pastry chef. At, I mean, not still, just right. but like you are the pastry chef at both restaurants. Right. Um, at that point, we come. Um, we start building a pastry team because we immediately after we open Uchiko um, are planning to open Uchi Houston. Yeah. So the 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 role begins my role begins to change into more of a director's role an executive role mm-hmm. uh, as we start building a management a real management team um, and um, as we start to open Uchi Houston I develop a pastry team that is really executing all of the vision and we're just working on the food and Paul's still there it's before Top Chef and me and Tyson and Paul are, trying, are running these two restaurants overseeing the vision of the food at both places um, and start working on Gucci Houston. And everything starts, you know, I don't want to say the magic went away by any means, but everything starts tightening up and becoming sure. a little more um, regimented and you need a little bit more of a system. I mean, you have to. You have to. You have to. Now, opening up Uchi Houston and you going back to Houston, that awakens some of the old extracurricular activities or... Oh, fuck yeah, I was a mess in Houston again. It's not just Houston. I mean, I've been a mess in Austin, too. Don't, don't get me don't, wrong. Don't get me, it's not exclusive to Houston. It's not exclusive to Houston. Um, you know, the thing about... My life had changed a lot. I um, I had married Callie. And we had Shout out to Callie. Her. She's fantastic. She is. She's, she's great. She was just helping me this morning make hash browns. Hundreds of hash browns. Um, and I... Um, you know, to be honest with you, there was just... There was a lot going on that I hadn't dealt with yeah. personally. And I got to Houston, and it, it started. It became one of those sort of double life things where I could go to Houston and escape and be this sure. other person. And it got real out of hand. It got very out of hand. Um, and you know, there's not much more to say about it than it. It, 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 
it just got it sent me into a tailspin, kind of uncontrollable. You know, I kept doing my job, and I was still doing. A, a, yeah. I know now I could have done a better job, but I was yeah. still doing a very good job. Um, we started planning to open uh, Uchi Dallas in St. Philip, which was yeah. my concept in the Uchi Group. So, um, Houston kind of stabilized, and I started yeah. spending more time back in back in Austin, and things chilled out a little bit. Yeah. Um, and started opening St. Philip. And then at that point, um, just with the stress of all the restaurants, the family, etc., I sort of, I, I kind of lost my shit again and started really drinking really heavily and um, ended up, you know, getting my fourth DWI, yeah. um, which clearly I'd been drinking heavily the whole time to get four, right? Yeah. Um, so I didn't get my fourth DWI and basically the whole, everything at Uchi and Uchi Restaurants, St. Philip, etc., and the other concepts we had planned came to an end at that yeah. point, so. And because they, they were like, you need to, um, or was it you? You're like, you looked at yourself and you're like, I have to change stuff with me. Well, I had an opportunity, thankfully, and I'm very grateful for how it all went down at Uchi. Yeah. Um, at the end there, I, had, I, I went to rehab. And, yeah. And I, they were able to help me do that. Um, when I came back from rehab, I still had St. Philip. I still had my ownership in the country yeah. company. I was a partner in the company, the entire company. Yeah. Um, but. We didn't really know how to deal with, you know, how do you take the, I mean, it was pretty much the face of the company at that point. Yeah. So how do we take, and it was national news. I mean, literally national news. Yeah. I mean, it was on the second page of the fucking, you know, it, it was national news. Um, That's surreal. Yeah, it was. Um, and for so many reasons. Um, you know, it's like, how do we take the person who's, who's become sort of the face of our company and, and, and the leader of, of our teams and put him back in the same position where, you know, what has happened because it was it got ugly. The, the, yeah. the, the media got shitty. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just like, all right, this guy has a problem, he's gone to get help and now we're gonna fix it. It was it was really shitty. And you know, a, a lot of it deservingly. I mean yeah. drive acting a fool while you're drinking all the time is stupid. Yeah. Right? Um and I and I learned that. And, <laughs> um but it got really ugly, and I came when I came back to work after rehab and after being away, like you know, in a different city for thirty days. Um, I was looked at in a different way. Yeah. Which again, deservingly. And so, how do I walk back into these restaurants and say, "Hey, this is your, this is still your fearless leader." Right. Um, so it was hard. To, it was a hard situation to deal with. And I tried to continue to run St. Philip, but the company didn't really want me managing people because they didn't feel like the, company, the, the, the teams had had the same respect for me, so they didn't want to put me back in that situation. And it just, by the end of it, it was, it was clear that it wasn't going to work out the same way. Yeah, but I... So we, yeah. we made the decision as a company um, for me to leave. And how do you feel about that? I mean, did um, you feel that maybe... With perspective, you're like it was good to get a new start, like to have a clean break from that part of your, that part of your career in life. Yes, I mean it was. Now I can tell yeah, you. I yeah. mean, now I can tell you. Now, as you sit in your new awesome restaurant, <laughs> yes, but. Well, I can tell you that there needed to, there. It was a. The the the, the car crash and the fourth DWI was wake up call. Callie and I basically breaking up was a, a, a wake up call. Um, you know, all these things were wake up calls, but it was really like. I mean, I thought that was the rest of my life as a partner in the company. Yeah. You know, having this, losing my wife, losing my house, losing my cars, losing, you know, losing, yeah. losing ultimately losing my, what I thought was my career, or it was my career in that career path. 
losing my partnership in the country, I mean, that was a absolute 100% rock bottom. I had, yeah. I had lost literally everything. Wow. Um, and... So yeah, that that was sort of the last straw. I was like, okay, like this is I, I, my I have to, a one hundred percent start over. And it was it was a I went and, and made tacos for a while. Where'd you make tacos? A place called Fork and Taco. Fork and Taco. Which shout out to to Fork and Taco. Those they were they were they they became my my second family at that point. And I went and I literally went and made fucking tortillas, and was like, okay, this is this is my life. Like I'm out of rehab. I'm sober. I'm going to, to meetings, I'm hanging out with my children, I'm, I'm luckily able to hang out with my children, I'm waiting trial to possibly go to prison for 10 years, um, and this is my life now, this is this is where I am, so, you know, I I spent that next year waiting for my trial, hmm. making tacos and hanging out with the girls as much as I could. Did you, so how did you start to then rebuild yourself, get healthy, what did you do, I mean... You, I, I, for the viewers or listeners at home, you're the best. You look, you're the best I've ever seen you. Uh, I lost 100 pounds. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, I lost 100 pounds um, due to changing my life. I, when I was in rehab, I learned that not only did I need to be healthier um, mentally, yeah, but physically as well is really important. I learned that I had, you know, I, I mean, I'd already known that I had severe sleep apnea. I had type two. I learned that I had type two diabetes, and I learned that you know, if I continued smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. That I probably wasn't going to see my grandkids. Yeah. So the rehab I went to was a very nice rehab, and there were yeah. doctors on staff, and they were like, you have to completely change your life if you want to live. And at that point, I really wanted to live. That's all I had left. I surrendered. I was surrendering everything. And so I was like, yeah, I want to fucking live. So I changed everything. I began running um, and stopped drinking soda, stopped smoking cigarettes, yeah. stopped eating Whataburger every day, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I, I just, I changed all that and decided, hey, I need to be healthy for my girls. And, you know, and I was still, and I thought to myself, even if I go to prison, I want to go in there and I want to have a healthy mind and healthy body and a healthy spiritual existence to where I, um, I can handle it, yeah. you know? And I knew I wasn't going to get 10 years, but it was a, it was a minimum of two to 10. Yeah. So, um... There's a lot of, I was very nervous. I was, uh, nervous isn't the right word. I was, you know, scared shitless. I didn't know what I was going to do, and I had lost my career, and, you know, I had been beaten badly, deservedly, in the media, and, you know, by m- myself, my peers, my family. And, um, you know, I just, I, the only thing I had was me at that point, and so I just did everything I could to make myself better. So, I mean, do you feel that being at that point at that, like, it is back to me to put myself together. You're like, I got myself here. I got to get myself out of here. Did you? Yeah. So then, how did you? How did you get back on the path to having your own restaurant again? Um. Well, funny enough, um, the president of Uchi Restaurants, the guy who ultimately he and I decided that I was no longer going to be with the company. Yeah. Um, had a friend, um, Sean McCusker, who owned yeah. some restaurants in New Orleans, who had been through sort of a similar situation as far as um, not being part of his company anymore that he built. Um, I helped. I did not build Uchi Uchi, but I did help build Uchi, and I was part of the company. Yeah. Um, was looking to do something new in a new city. So he left New Orleans, and he was either going to do Austin or L.A. He yeah. spoke to John, is his name, 
Sean McCusher spoke to John Baydale and said, you know, hey, I'm looking, I'm looking into a restaurant either in Austin or L.A. Do you know anyone? Um, they both had spent time in both cities. And John said, yeah, if you do it in Austin, this is your guy. And he gave him my name. Wow. And Sean walked into Fork and Taco and was like, hey, this is what's going on. I'm Sean McCusker. And um, he had sent me an email saying that he was going to do so. So it wasn't completely by surprise. But, but I still. Yeah, and he, he literally, and I was literally making fucking tacos and we were getting our asses kicked in brunch and he's like let's talk you know and so we talked we spoke and um we sort of had this kind of dating period for several months and talked about what what we liked in restaurants and you know he had decided that he was going to stay in austin that he he preferred he preferred austin over over la for to open a restaurant and we spent the next year finding a location and making a plan to build a restaurant so Let's talk about Bonami. How did you start putting the menu together? And now, just to be clear, like you're overseeing the entire program. You're not just doing pastry. Like you are doing the savory. You are doing the sweet. You're doing everything. In the restaurant. The restaurant. You're running a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could break down every individual thing, but yes. Right. But you are overseeing the culinary vision here. Absolutely. Um, you know, at, at Uchi, I had, I had, I kind of, gra- and I don't like to use the word graduated, but beyond pastry um, to oversee the entire culinary operation there um so when i came here it was as the executive chef and it was not you know it was not just a pastry pastry based, based menu although there are a lot of really cool pastry things on the menu i mean the uh french dip croissant is awesome thank you it's like and then all of the uh potato roasty mm-hmm. uh which are like the fried potato uh, like you see the techniques you see a chef who's like i understand start to finish of, of, and how it all plays together and we you know we do all our breads in house we do all our meat grinds in house I mean it's a totally in house operation everything um, as, all, as restaurants should be um, but um, you know as we started putting together the menu he and I had restaurants all over the country that we both liked and we started pulling inspirations you know and one of our together one of our favorite restaurants is uh, Ocheval in Chicago shout um, out that yeah. cheeseburger yeah exactly and you can see some of that inspiration yeah. in our menu right <laughs> Um, hopefully not too much. <laughs> no, not too much. <laughs> but no, you get that same like comfort vibe. Like you can come in here and have a steak, same like there, or have a, or you can come and just have a cheeseburger and a beer. Exactly, and that's yeah. exactly what we want to do. We want to make that comfortable. I've been in Austin a long time, and I know. I feel like I know what Austin is missing as far as what I like, right? Yeah. So when I'm like, what do I want to eat? I'm like, man, I wish there was a place like this. And this is it. I have a couple other in mind, too, but that'll be round two. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I wanted a place. I wanted to eat. He and I both were like, I want to eat at a place like this. And we created a menu that we wanted to eat. Yeah. Um, um, that was the vision. And then Jared and I, my chef, uh, Jared Ferguson and I, created the menu physically created the menu so you know Sean and I shared the vision and then we created we created this menu um, I mean I wrote the menu to the tastings Jared came down and yeah. we executed it um, he came down from Portland so yeah um, I mean how do you feel I mean four weeks I mean so in, I mean, let, let's say second third lease on life I mean you have you're back with Cali fourth Cali, fifth, fourth, yeah. fifth. <laughs> um, you're not smoking you're not drinking you're not doing drugs um, I mean Cal, yeah, Cal and I reconciled. We separated for a year, uh, a little over a year. And um, now you're back together. We, we've been back together. She has also made some changes in her life, which allowed us to sort of be on the same path again. Um, How do you, I mean, do you feel lucky? Up, I feel incredibly grateful every day. I mean, that's not just a, 
a recovering alcoholic speaking, you know, which is you know, part of what we do is being grateful. Um, <laughs> I am beyond grateful. I have so many opportunities. I'm grateful for a lot of things. I'm grateful that there's some forgiveness. Sure. Not only from my family and my wife and my children and my peers, but from my city. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I'm grateful that, you know, I, I had Sean, you know, take this, sort of take this chance and say like, hey, I, I see what's going on with you. Let's try this. I want to be a part yeah. of this too. You know, and I want to be part of his story. He wanted to be part of my story. And, and I'm grateful that I fucking, I'm grateful for myself that I took, you know, I was, I, that I said, hey, I, let's pull yourself up out of this shit and rebuild. You know, you have, you have to rebuild and not just. You know, this this could be very, this could have been a very defeating time in my life, and it was. But yeah. I didn't let I didn't let me let it stay defeated. So you know, week four, we're here, we're excited. It's great, and you're also doing in addition to just having the restaurant and your life together. You're also doing charity work as well. A lot of charity work. I have a, cha- I have a trailer, a food trailer that my partner William uh, William Ball and I have. That is called My Name Is Joe, and it's a, it's a trailer. It's a coffee trailer focused on hiring people out of recovery. Yeah, people who are from the industry. They want to continue being in the, the hospitality industry, but they need a landing space that maybe not is back right in the restaurant. Sure. So you can go. There's real, you know, there's actual real food that chefs can go and actually make real food. Chefs or cooks. There's a barista program. Um, you know, there's passion and pride in what we do, and we take a small percentage of their sales, and they go straight to recovery center. It's amazing. Um, and we, like I said, we're, we're, we're committed to hiring people in recovery and also giving a, a, a small a, a small percentage to to the recovery center. Um, I work with an organization called Shatterproof, and last year... Is that the rappelling down the building? Rappelling was one of the things we yeah. did. Um, this year, I'm running the New York Marathon for yeah? Shatterproof. Oh, my God. Um, all of these, you know, we put... It's really cool. We put this team together called 86 Addiction, um, and it was a restaurant chef-based team for the Repel Challenge last year, and I, we ended up um, raising $18,000. That's incredible. In just a couple days, putting together this awesome chef chef team of, of you know people who have been affected by addiction, people who have been addicted, and just just people who wanted to come out and support. And we had this really cool like 13 chef team that everyone you know we did peer to peer fundraising, and we're doing right for next year we're doing a chef run. Mm-hmm. And we're doing a shatterproof team for a chef run because we actually have a lot of runners in the city. And then this year, I'm running the New York Marathon, same um, to raise to raise money for awareness to addiction. Oh. Um, and that's you know that's a small part of other charity that we do. Yeah. I work with an organization called LifeWorks. I work with another organization called American Youth Works. Um, that's awesome. Well, Chef, I'm sorry, I know I cut you off before. What, what's Callie opening? What's her new project? Um, she's opening a new project right now. She'll be open um, the middle of June. Uh, she has sort of a new opportunity to do some cool things, and it's her own restaurant. It's called Bombshell. And, awesome. Um, yeah, she's working on that right now. So, you know, by the end of the summer, we'll be we'll have two fully operating restaurants in one family. Amazing. Well, chef, friend, sure. it's I'm I'm happy to to see you and see you like in it and looking I, good. I appreciate that. I'm glad you were able to actually come in. And, oh. and, I mean, I knew you would once you came in town, but yeah. I'm glad you were here the first no. month. And you got to see, it's get great. to see what's going on. It's here. it's it's always great. Um, so you guys have a what's the Instagram? What's the website? Where can people come? Um, Bonamiaustin.com is our website. Our, our Instagram. B o n h o m i e. Yeah. Austin. 
Texas, AUS, I mean, just Austin.com. <laughs> Bonamy, Austin.com. And then our um, Instagram is Bonamy underscore Austin. Yeah. And same with our Twitter, and uh, you can find us on Facebook and all the things. And I handle all the social media. So. You do a good job. Hey, thanks. It looks good. Thanks. Anyway, congratulations. So happy to see you. Right. Uh, we have another track from the archives, live song, and then a live band coming up in the second half of Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Am I going to play? This is way too slow. slow. It's like extremely too slow. We do. You guys are playing faster than the beat, I think. Yeah, there you go. I'm just not playing my left hand because there's no space for me. Okay. Oh, dear. All right. Well, we'll try again. We'll just come with the singing after one. Yeah. Okay. Five, six, seven, eight.
Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Welcome back. We have John Chow of By Four, Misha. 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 Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. All things. 80-20. 80-20. And who's your 20% over here? And then we have Hannes Brown, uh, virtuosic guitar player, composer, who is not talking, but is instrumental to today and part of the band. Welcome to Snacky Tunes, both of you. That's a thumbs up from Hannes and a hi, John. Hi. So you grew up all over the place, all over the world. Yeah. And it's pretty... Mm-hmm evident in your music that you have global influences. Where are some of the places that you're pulling from, from your youth and younger years and wilder times? From, from back in the dark days. From, from back, <laughs> back in the dark days. <laughs> the dark days. Um, I definitely, I grew up in Texas and if you, in, in Houston, which is about five hours outside of New Orleans. And so between Houston, which has country music and Western music and blues and everything else, and New Orleans with jazz and second line and brass and everything else, you end up with this amazing mixture of root, quote, big air quotes, roots music. That's a huge part of, that's a huge part of, sorry, I just triggered something. That's a huge part of uh, my upbringing. And then, of course, I spent my early childhood until I was 11 in Asia, in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And so we grew up listening to a lot of Chinese opera and Indonesian gamelan music and Indian music. And so that Who's is your the, favorite Chinese opera star. Oh man, you can't, there's so many. No, actually I never learned any of their names because they all sound, this is the dirty secret about Chinese opera. You don't actually go to listen to the melodies because there aren't any to really speak of. I'm looking over at Hannes who actually would probably enjoy it, but it's, it's, it's something it's, it's like blue cheese or like, um, Marmite, you you learn to love it. Okay, you don't actually. Nobody's like, I want, I dig that solo. I love blue cheese. I mean, I think blue cheese is great. Did you grow up loving blue cheese? Uh, no, I right. mean, but not no. But I just we didn't really eat it that much. But um, once I kind of got into it, you really appre- right off the bat. I remember trying Marmite for the first and last time. <laughs> exactly. like, but like, I, I'm an adventurous eater, but this is just something no. I will never get yeah. to. Yeah, my mom grew up in Australia, so one time she brought home some. Uh, Marmite or Vegemite, one or the other, for me and my sister. And we, she told us it was chocolate because she wanted to 
you know, mess with because that's kind of on my head. Yeah. Um, and man, that was the first and last time. I can still taste it. That stuff is anyway. So Chinese opera is Chinese like that. O- Chinese opera for like music. Murmur. Okay, you've been warned. Knowing all these different types of music and having mm-hmm. all these different sounds that are all over the place, it's not just like Americana. It's it's global world music. How do you begin to infuse all of the different sounds and kind of pull it into a cohesive narrative when you're putting together yeah. your music? I think um, our label would say that we have not managed to do that well, and we're still trying to get that. Name together. check the label. Tom Lab. Hi, Tom Lab. Hi, Tom Lab. Famous for Patrick Wolf and the books and Cassio Tone and Deerhoof. But, um, but I think the way that we try to do this, or I try to do this, is um, at the end of the day, Misha is about pop songs and or, or pop melodies and... Um, a sense of romance and bittersweetness, and that's the core. And then everything else around it is like setting the stage. You know, it's sort of like if you watch the movie in in the mood for love or something. That is a Chinese or Cantonese movie, but the themes are universal. And so the goal for me, at least, when I write these songs, is at the end of the day, you can play them, which we're going to do mostly today, on guitar or piano, and have it work. But it's set in a particular scene or a particular place that you know, happens to fit the melody or the words. When you're writing this music, do you have a certain thematic or somatic um, idea in mind? Is there a different setting for each of these songs outside of just the music that accompanies that's a, it? That's a great question. I kind of do. Um, <clears throat> I can Usually there's a, a color and a darkness and a time of day, and there's a feeling. It's sort of like, um, you know, when you... Sometimes when you watch a really amazing movie or, or read a really good book or you're out somewhere at night and there's that, there's that time right between like 6 and 7 when the sun's setting. Magic hour. The magic hour. Or 2 a.m. when you're just like anything could happen. I'm not ready to go to bed yet, but this is kind of weird and I'm sort of out of body. That feeling is 90% of what I try to go for when I'm writing the songs. And then um, and I usually there's a, a color and a texture like... The song, we're going to play a song called Limelight, and for me, it, for me, in my head, when you listen to the song on the album, it's Tokyo or Hong Kong in the rain, right around 11 p.m. When you play the song today, we, I want to get the setting and also the backdrop for, for everything. You play a lot of the instruments on the record. Yeah. For the more global instruments or global sounds, who did you bring in for collaboration, and how did you guide them in the process? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, <clears throat> for the brass stuff, there was this one song called A Later that has uh, essentially a second line, which is uh, a New Orleans brass band sound. I, play, I arranged it, but I needed friends from Texas and New Orleans to play on it to make it feel right, because if it's too tight, it sounds wrong. If it's too loose, it sounds wrong, and there's a certain rhythm that you have to grow up hearing. So that's one example, and I had another friend in Tokyo who played some parts, and um, for the house music bits, our first album was produced uh, in Hamburg in Germany by a bunch of um, mute records and compact records guys, DJ Kotze and stuff like that, and so I asked for a lot of help from them because, you know, I know what I know, but to make it feel right, you have to sometimes go to the source, which is important. How do you blend it all together once you get the pieces or give them direction? Or if you're deferring to someone who's such a master, yeah. <clears throat> but you say, I know that's how you want it, but I want it like this because it's, it's my music. How do you or what? How do you get all of the creative minds together to become the Misha sound? I think I'm getting better at sitting with something and, and letting it, as opposed to going, no, that's not exactly what I wanted from the first in the first place and therefore redo it. I'm getting, I'm looking for happy accidents more and more, which I think is... Um, is the whole point but if you come from a place where you 
electronic music, especially when you write everything yourself, it's hard to let go. I think you're used to doing everything yourself, and so this idea that oh, I have this is a different sound that's weird. I don't like it. That's the natural rea- at least for me the natural reaction. And so, for, to your answer your question, um, I wait. I listen to it and I kind of sit there and go, how do I make how do, how does this help the song as opposed to where do I slot this thing in? And if it doesn't slot in, let me change it. And that makes it a lot better, I think. Can we hear a song? Sure. Okay, what time of day it is, what's the <laughs> setting, what's the color, give us, give us, set, paint the scene for us. So this song um, is called Limelight, and this song is definitely darker colored. Um, 11 p.m., kind of rainy, and uh, either Hong Kong or Tokyo, lots of neon. Here we are, Misha, live on Snacky Tunes.
even lonely So hold my heart I know you can hear me I'll leave a trail So you can follow I'll leave a trail So you never get lost Oh, we belong We belong So hold your heart I know you've been lonely Hold your heart you can hear me I'll leave a trail so you can follow I'll leave a trail so you never get lost oh your latest record started with the ending of a relationship and the passing of your grandmothers but you also write really great pop songs that are joyous and happy and talk about beginnings how do you balance the juxtaposition of the two themes so you don't veer too far to one side and get stuck in one thematic uh, ongoing loop? Yeah. You mean the one where you start to like cry, listen to The Cure, and stay home? and You start to... Sorry, wrong mic. <laughs> the one where you... The loop of death spiral of The Cure and black clothing and curtains? Yeah. Um, I think part of writing the album was an attempt to not do that because... It's so tempting. Um, I think the way... To, if you said contradiction or, or juxtaposition, I think that's exactly what I try to find in everything. And so if it's a joyous song, we have a couple songs in the album that are super, super bright and poppy, then the lyrics are typically darker. <clears throat> and if the lyrics are dark, like the song Limelight is, the lyrics repeat over and over again um, because it's kind of like a mantra. And I'm Buddhist, and so there's a lot of meditation and, and mantras in... Buddhism and the idea is to, through that process, kind of um, exercise the things that are in your mind. And as part of that, I think um, when you have such dark lyrics, in, in the case of Limelight, you want to pop your melody to balance it out. And um, I always try to find that bittersweetness so nothing's either too happy or too sad. And the things I love in art and movies and books are always the same way. If it doesn't veers either side too much, it feels like it doesn't resemble life. So when you were putting together All We Will Become, were you going one song happy, one song sad, <laughs> one song happy, one song sad? Or how did you batch it together in the writing process? Yeah, <clears throat> um, it, You mentioned this relationship ending and my grandmother passing away. And then at the same time, my sister was having I had a, a new nephew in the process and um, and a couple people got married in our band. And so I think the cycle of this of the album it starts with a song called This Is How It Must Begin and it ends with a song called Chartres which is a reference to the cathedral in, in France and so the idea is it's actually one loop it starts in the beginning and then it builds to the middle where you have this sort of um, it starts brash and big like life kind of does with optimism and happiness and big bold songs and then right at the middle of the song later I was talking about with the second line drums and New Orleans feel Second Line is called Second Line because it follows the funeral march. So it's celebratory, but it's also elegiac. It's meant to be happy and sad. And that's the middle of the album. And then as you listen to the second half of the album, it starts to become more like Twilight. And then it ends in a church with the idea of it's kind of on the nose a bit, but the idea of salvation or release. And that's how I sequence the album as well. So did this help? Um, you know what it it did in the sense that it gave me something to do like that focused the sort of the feelings and the confusion and everything else it anchored it and it gave it purpose and I met Hannes and my my our singer Ronit who double we we double all of our songs kind of like the way the kills does um she's not here but we worked on the album together and uh it, I think it helped 
me certainly, but it also helped her. And um, yeah. Can we hear another song? Sure. What's the setting for this? What time of day? What's the color? These the next two are both darker songs, and they're um, this one is called uh, Cavalry, and it is brown. It, think of it as probably London or Scotland, and um, it's meant to reference the Cavalry Cross, which is the cross of the circle in the middle. And um, think fuzzy sweaters and a little bit more sadness. Okay, here live on Snacky Tunes. <laughs>
Speaking of true love, I know you like ice cream. I love ice cream. I love ice cream. You went on a five-borough ice cream tour a few years back, didn't you? Yeah. <clears throat> What's your favorite? What's the story behind it? How many cones can you do in a day? <laughs> How long did this last? Is it still going on? Yeah, so I went with... Um, wow, there's a lot of questions in one. My favorite... So my initial favorite is Oddfellows, which is in Brooklyn. and We love Sam Mason. Amazing, right? Snacky Tunes, Dinner with the Band. Oh my family. goodness, so good. And Oddfellows, especially because once they found out that we were doing this five-road food tour, even though we have collectively 10 followers on all the social media, they gave us free scoops, which is sort of like a bartender giving you free drinks at, the, like, at 10 a.m. So, right. you know, it's a good, bad idea. Yeah. And then we went on to do um, uh, 25, 25 scoops each. In one day? In one day, without any other food. By the end, we were so... And you have this weird feeling where it's like you're, you're slightly jet-lagged because you've gone through five cycles of sugar high. Um, now, so Oddfellows is amazing. And I think in the city, in New York, in Manhattan, Morgan Stearns is our favorite. Morgan Stearns is just amazing. Both of those are tr- Incredible. tremendous. In terms of how many cones... Uh, we did four cones before we thought cones. It's like hot dog eating contest. You, it's useless. You don't need the cone. You right. really just want to get at the actual, right. the crux of the ice cream. So you just got rid of the cone and just <laughs> went to the cup. <laughs> right. And so we still do it. And the last time we did it, we went with Bjork's enge- this guy, Andy Baldwin, who's a mixing engineer, um, and a couple other musicians. We had five people in the car, and we did tacos. And uh, tacos are better. Salty food is better, especially when it's protein and starch. And so we each did like eight tacos in a day, which is a lot, but not so many that you, you're that's, like... That's, that's okay. That's, that's, like, that's like doable. That's, that's not even comparable to 25 scoops. No. <laughs> 25 scoops is a mistake. What, yeah. was the, uh, what was on the lower end of the list? Who did not kind of get up there? Or did you go to like a, did you throw like a basket of robins in there? Okay, or just comes so, from generic So this is the issue, chains. right? Bronx is not great for ice cream. Right. You, and we turn out later that you can get like halado and, and, and sort of like Argentine or, or Mexican ice cream up there. But you have to go like way, way, way up. So we ended up having to do Carvel. Oh, man. Yeah, which I thought would be like hipster cool. You know, so ironically cool. But it turned out just to be bad. Like the ice cream was fro- like had that freezer burn taste to it. You know, I love in, in college, I would eat um, Elio's frozen pizza. And in my, love those. In my mind, I still like Elio's frozen pizza, but I think now that I've had all this pizza and seen the back of Roberta's, that if I were to eat it, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> no. Know. So I don't ever want to touch the memory. I kind of feel like Baskin-Robbins, Carvel's, all that stuff that you got in high yeah. school is like, oh, I like ice cream. That was ice cream. And then you have something like Van Leeuwen's or Oddfellows or Morgan Stern, and you go back and you go, oh, this is just like synthetic garbage. It's not great. Although Baskin-Robbins, I have to say like... Like pistachio, to me, the fact I grew up in Texas eating, you know, artificial green. So now when I see like fancy pistachio that's white colored, like that to me is wrong. You should always have food coloring so it looks green. That's like uh, growing up, there was a strong push for natural soda. So you get orange soda that was just clear because they didn't right, put the right, dye exactly. in there. Um, but your mind just, I mean, I guess your mind couldn't just wrap your head around, oh, it just tastes like oranges, even though it's clear. It's weird. Even That's though wrong. the orange is not <laughs> real. Exactly. F- Fanta and, and all that stuff is sun-kissed. That, that orange is not like, oh, it's got real oranges. That's <laughs> exactly. why it's that color. Do you have a favorite ice cream? I love um, sea salt caramel, uh. which which is not... Which is not that interesting because most people like it. No, I mean it's like it's like it's good though. It's like Radiohead, it's like it's, living Radiohead. Yeah, um, and also Oddfellows, um, like the corn ice cream. The corn ice cream that was the first one we had. I, Hannah's, I'm looking at Hannah's. <laughs> Hannah's can't answer, but have you had the corn ice cream? It's amazing. And the popcorn ice cream where they actually like apparently soak the milk in the pop. Anyway, yeah. I digress. But yeah, I mean it's almost. I mean today is not a good indicator, but it's almost time for summer ice cream. I think cones. it's time for fiber of 
ice cream running. When you're not doing five burrows, do you, are you two scoops, three scoops, one scoop? I Sunday. I am a quiet shame. Sunday corner. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're reading my diary. <laughs> um, I have ice cream every day. Every day. Every day. No way. It's totally. Like la- I can tell you, last night I had Talenti. Uh, ice cream because I was at somebody's house and that's. Oh, I'm had, sorry. Is this 365 days a year? You have this ice is cream? like 320 days a year. So of ice cream. Oh, okay, so yeah. maybe not on the coldest, darkest day of winter. No, those are the best days because if you go now to Morgan Cerns, there's like a line. It's like the longest line you've ever right. seen in your life. It goes around the block. So I actually go in the in the. the okay, so this is how you know a true ice cream aficionado. We are the ones in Morgan Cerns or Oddfellows at like January 5th with like one of those ice cream bags. Because you know you can get in there and get a ton of pints and ice cream and get out before there's a, you know, without a line. Does that kind of like a bartender, do you get rewarded in the summer? They know you and they say, oh, John, you know, come come up here. You know, I, should do, I should do that. I'm just kind of curious because the dedica- you're the ones that keep the, the money true. in the register in the winter. <clears throat> but do you have to wait in that line in the summer? You should get... With Oddfellows, no. Because they know me, but with Morgan Cerns, the turnover is high enough that like, and I, I never met whoever the the big. The you should is. you should get a hold of Nick. I should. You should get a hold yeah. of Nick and say, "Hey, Nick, yo, yo. I'm on Snacky Tunes. I'm on Snacky Greg, Tunes." Greg says hi. Uh, Hook me up. So what's up next for Misha? Um, we are recording our third album. Fantastic. Yeah, pretty excited. It's not going to be as to your, you know, the juxtaposition will still be there. The pop songs will still be there, but I think it'll be simpler. Less heartbreak. Less heartbreak. No, still always heartbreak. Always heartbreak. Well, if there's no heartbreak, you end up having this thing about your dog and your gun and your yeah. truck, and that only goes so far when you live in New York. So, <laughs> none of which you have. <laughs> none of which I have. Yeah, I would start with. I mean, which one am I get easiest to get these dog. days? Dog. Probably. Or gun. Or actually, gun. Actually, and yeah, these 2017. Days? Exactly. Yeah. Woo. Okay. <laughs> so, recording the new album. Uh, yep. Same process. Are you inviting more people in this time? I am. I am. And I think I've been listening to a lot of two different groups of music, like two different types of music. One is I'm like, I love Noi and the sort of German kraut rock thing. I'm super minimal, like, think maybe an ESG, so funk a little bit, but like minimal wire LCD sound system. And then I've been listening to um, a ton of flume and like what they call future bass. Neither one of which is my sort of natural home. Maybe more Noi. So we'll see what the new album comes out. It'll probably be country music next. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Where can people find the records, listen to you? I mean, you're not on Instagram anymore because they made you take it down. My PR agency is like, seriously, just you're insulting us as a collective representation of you. So I've taken that. No more ice cream cream photos. Yeah, I take down all your ice cream photos. Um, You can find us on Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, everywhere. If you search for Misha and then type in Limelight for the song, you'll find the rest of the album. Perfect. Well, thank you to Philip Spear for being on the episode. And if you like this episode, check out our archives and please make sure to leave us a review and even rate us because why not? Podcasts. Woo! John, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Hannes, thanks for being here. We will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you going to take us out with? What's the setting, the color, the, the time of day? This song is total Nashville. I was watching Nashville, the, mo- the TV show, which, by the way, is I think way better than Empire for its crazy drama, but one could, you know, agree to disagree. This song is definitely a country song. Think Johnny, uh, think Richard Thompson or like uh, a little, maybe a little bit of mm, Waylon Jennings or something or George Strait, modern country. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Take us out. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.